the inspiration of the scriptures, James B. Ryle. What is the truth about the inspiration of the Bible? This is a question of supreme importance in the present day. Ignorance or want of clear views about the subject is a worm at the root of much religion in this century. Myriads of professing Christians are like men whose feet are on a quicksand and whose heads are in a fog. They do not know what they believe about inspiration. 1. Facts about the Bible I begin by saying that a general vague belief that the Bible is an inspired book is common among Christians. Many, no doubt, could not explain what they mean. But whether men know it or not, their belief is well-founded. It rests on a collection of facts which no intelligent, educated, and honest-minded man can pretend for a moment to deny. A. It is a fact that there is an extraordinary depth, fullness, and richness in the contents of the Bible, which is supernatural and above man. There is a complete gulf between it and any other book ever was written. It throws more light on a vast number of most important subjects than all the other books in the world put together. It boldly handles matters which are beyond the reach of man when left to himself. It treats of things which are mysterious and invisible. The soul, the world to come, and eternity. Depths which no man can fathom. All who have tried to write of these things without Bible light have done little but show their own ignorance. They look like the blind. They speculate, they guess. They generally make the darkness more visible. And rather, in a reason of uncertainty and doubt. How dim were the views of Socrates, Plato, Cicero, and Seneca? A well-taught funny scholar in this day knows more spiritual truth than all these sages put together. The Bible alone gives a reasonable account of the beginning and the end of the globe and its years, a true picture of man, a just view of God. The Bible alone shows us a reasonable and satisfactory remedy for the spiritual wants and necessities of dying men, and this the universal cravings of conscience by revealing the Savior. The Bible alone explains the state of things which we can see in the world around us. There are many things on earth which man cannot explain. The amazing inequality of conditions, the poverty and distress, the oppression and persecution, the failures of statesmen and legislators, the constant existence of uncured evils and abuses. All these things are often puzzling to him. He sees but does not understand. But the Bible makes it all clear. Now, all these are things which men could find nowhere except in the scriptures. We have probably not the least idea how little we should know about these things if we have not the Bible. We hardly know the value of the early days and the time which that shines upon us. Because we never have known what it is to be without them. We do not value these truths because we do not realize the darkness of men to whom these truths have not been revealed. B. It is another fact that there is an extraordinary unity and harmony in the contents of the Bible, which is supernatural and above man. We all know how difficult it is to get a story told by any three persons not living together, in which there are not some contradictions and discrepancies. 
if the story is a long one and involves a large quantity of detail, unity seems almost impossible among the common run of men. But it is not so with the Bible. Here is a long book written by not less than 30 different persons. The writers were men of every rank and class in society. One was a lawgiver. One was a warlike king. One was a peaceful king. One was a herdsman. One had been brought up as a publican. Another as a physician. Another as a learned Pharisee. Two as fishermen. Several as priests. They lived at different intervals all over the a space of 1,500 years, and the greater part of them never saw each other face to face. And yet, there is a perfect harmony among all these writers. They all write as if they were under one dictation. The style and handwriting may vary, but the mind that runs through their work is always one and the same. They all tell the same story. They all give one account of man, one account of God, one account of the way of salvation, one account of the human heart. You see truth unfolding and developing under their hands as you go through the volume of their writings, but you never detect any real contradiction or any contrariety of view. See, it is another fact that there is an extraordinary wisdom sublimity and majesty in the style of the Bible, which is above man. Strange and unlikely as it was, the writers of Scripture have produced a book which even at this day is utterly unrivaled. With all our boasted attainments in science and art and learning, we can produce nothing in literature that can be compared with the Bible. Even at this very hour, the book stands entirely alone. There is a strain and a style and a tone of thought about it which separate it from all other writings. There are no weak points and flaws and blemishes. There is no mixture of infirmity and feebleness such as you will find in the works of even the best Christians. <clears throat> holy, holy, holy seems to be written on every page. The talk of comparing the Bible with other sacred books, so-called, such as the Koran or the Book of Mormon, is positively absurd. You might as well compare the sun with a candle, or St. Paul's with a hovel. God seems to have allowed the existence of pretended revelations in order to prove the immeasurable superiority of his own words. To talk of the inspiration of the Bible, as only differing in degree from that of such writings as the works of Homer, Plato, Shakespeare, and Milton, is simply foolish. Every well-educated, honest, and unprejudiced reader must see that there is a gulf between the Bible and any other book which no man can fathom. You feel that turning from the scriptures to other works, that you have got into a new atmosphere. You feel like one who has exchanged gold for base metal and heaven for earth. D. It is another fact that there is an extraordinary accuracy in the facts and statements of the Bible, which is supernatural and above man. 
here is a book which has been finished and before the world for nearly 1900 years. Those years have been the busiest and most changeful period the world has ever seen. During this period, the greatest discoveries have been made in science, the greatest alteration in the ways and customs of society, the greatest improvement to the habits and usages of life. Hundreds of things might be named which satisfied and pleased our forefathers, which we have laid aside long ago as obsolete, useless, and old-fashioned. The laws, the books, the houses, the clothes, the carriages of each succeeding century have been, been a continual improvement on those of the century that went before. There is hardly a thing in which faults and weak points have not been discovered. There is scarcely an institution which has not gone through a process of reforming, amending, and changing. But all this time, men have never discovered a weak point or a defect in the Bible. Infidels have assailed it in vain. There it stands, perfect and fresh and complete, as it did 19 centuries ago. The march of intellect never overtakes it. The wisdom of wise men never gets beyond it. The science of philosophers never proves it wrong. The discoveries of travelers and archaeologists never convicted of mistakes. E. It is another fact that there is in the Bible an extraordinary suitableness to the spiritual wants of all mankind. It exactly meets the heart of man in every rank or class, in every country and climate, in every age and period of life. It is the only book in existence which is never out of place and out of date. Other books, after a time, become obsolete and old-fashioned. The Bible never does. Other books suit one country or people and not another. The Bible suits all. It is the book of the poor and unlearned, no less than of the rich and the philosopher. It feeds the mind of the laborer in his cottage, and it satisfies the gigantic intellect of Newton and Faraday. It is equally valued by the converted New Zealander in the Southern Hemisphere and the Indian in the cold north of America and the Hindu under the tropical sun. It is the only book, moreover, which seems always fresh and evergreen and new. It is a well never run dry and a field which is never barren. It meets the hearts and minds and consciences of Christians in the present century as fully as it did of those of Greeks and Romans when it was first completed. It is still the first book which fits the child's mind when he begins to learn religion and the last to which the old man clings as he leaves the world. In short, it suits all ages, ranks, climates, minds, conditions. It is the one book which suits the world. I place these facts about the Bible before my readers, and I ask them to consider them well. Take them all together, treat them fairly, and look at them honestly. Upon any other principle than that of supernatural and divine inspiration, those facts appear to me inexplicable and unaccountable. 
Here is a book written by a succession of Jews in a little corner of the world, which positively stands alone. Not only were its writers isolated and cut off in a peculiar manner from other nations, but they belonged to a people who have never produced any other book of note except the Bible. There is not the slightest proof that, unassisted and left to themselves, they were capable of writing anything remarkable, like the Greeks, Greeks and Romans. Yet these men have given the world a volume which for depth, unity, sublimity, accuracy, suitableness to the wants of man and power of influencing its readers is perfectly unrivaled. How can this be explained? How can it be accounted for? To my mind, there is only one answer. The writers of the Bible were divinely helped and qualified for the work which they did. The book which they have given to us was written by inspiration of God. Of course, I know that this ag agnostics and infidels see nothing in the facts which I have just put down. Such unhappy persons always appear blind to the enormous difficulties of their own position. We have a just right to ask them how they can possibly explain the origin and nature of the Bible if they will not allow that it is of divine authority. We have a right to say, here is a book which not only courts inquiry, but demands investigation. We challenge you to tell us how this book was written, if you deny its inspiration. How can they account for this book standing so entirely alone, and for nothing having ever been written equal to it, like it, near it, or fit to be compared with it for a minute? I defy them to give any rational reply on their own principles. On our own principles we can to tell us that man's unassisted mind could have written the Bible is simply ridiculous. It is worse than ridiculous. It is the height of credulity. In short, the difficulties of unbelief are far greater than the difficulties of faith. No doubt there are things hard to be understood if we accept the scriptures as God's word. But, after all, they are nothing compared to the hard things which rise up in our way and demand solutions if we once deny inspiration. There is no alternative. Men must either believe things which are grossly improbable, or else they must accept the great general truth that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Two, the nature of inspiration. Passing away from the common, vague, general belief in the divine inspiration of the Bible, I propose now to consider the extent to which the Bible is inspired. Assuming as a general truth that the Bible is given by divine inspiration, I wish to examine how far and to what degree its writers receive divine help. In short, what is it exactly that we mean when we talk of the scriptures as the word of God? Inspiration is a miracle. My starting point is this. Do we believe that Christianity is a supernatural religion? Do we or do we not believe in the possibility of miracles? That is my first point. 
Inspiration is a miracle, and like all miracles, there is much about it which we cannot fully understand. We must not confound it with intellectual power, such as great poets and authors possess. To talk of Shakespeare and Milton and Byron being inspired like Moses and Paul is to my mind almost profane. Nor must we confound it with the gifts and graces bestowed on the early Christians in the primitive church. All the apostles were enabled to preach and work miracles, but not all were inspired to write. We must rather regard it as a special supernatural gift bestowed on about 30 people out of mankind in order to qualify them for the special business of writing the scriptures. And we must be content to allow that, like everything miraculous, we cannot entirely explain it, though we can believe it. A miracle would not be a miracle if it could be explained. That miracles are possible, I do not stop to prove here. I never trouble myself on that subject until those who deny miracles have fairly grappled with the great fact that Christ rose again from the dead. I firmly believe that miracles are possible and have been wrought. And among great miracles, I place the fact that men were inspired by God to write the Bible. Inspiration, therefore, being a miracle, I frankly allow that there are difficulties about it, which at present I cannot fully solve. The exact manner in which the minds of the inspired writers of Scripture work when they wrote, I do not pretend to explain. Very likely they could have not explained it themselves. I do not admit for a moment that they were mere machines holding pens and, like typesetters in the printing office, did not understand what they were doing. I abhor the mechanical theory of inspiration. I dislike the idea that men like Moses and Paul were no better than organ pipes employed by the Holy Ghost, or ignorant secretaries or amnuesses who wrote by dictation what they did not understand. I admit nothing of the kind. I believe that in some marvelous manner the Holy Ghost made use of the reason, the memory, the intellect, the style of thought, and the peculiar mental temperament of each writer of the scriptures. But how and in what manner this was done, I can no more explain than I can the union of the two natures, God and man, in the person of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. I only know that there is both a divine and a human element in the Bible, and that while the men who wrote it were really and truly men, the book that they wrote and handed down to us is really and truly the Word of God. I know the result, but I do not understand the process. The result is that the Bible is the written Word of God, but I can no more explain the process than I can explain how the water became wine at Cana, or how five loaves fed five thousand men, or how a word raised Lazarus from the dead. I do not pretend to explain miracles. 
and I do not pretend to explain fully the miraculous gift of inspiration. The position I take up is that while the Bible writers were not machines, as some sneeringly say, they only wrote what God taught them to write. The Holy Ghost put into their minds thoughts and ideas, and they guided their pens in writing and expressing them. When you read the Bible, you are not reading the unaided, self-taught composition of erring men like yourselves but thoughts and words which were suggested by the eternal God. The men who were employed to indict the scripture spake not of themselves. They spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He that holds the Bible in his hand should know that he holds not the word of man, but of God. Inspiration extends to the whole Bible. Concerning the precise extent to which the Bible is inspired, I freely admit that opinions differ widely. Some of the views put forth on the subject appear to me erroneous in the extreme. I shall not shrink from giving my own opinion and stating my reasons for maintaining it. In matters like these, I dare not call any man master. Painful as it is to disagree with able and gifted men on religious questions, I dare not take up views of inspiration which my head and heart tell me are unsound, however high and honored the names of those who maintain them. I believe in my conscience that low and defective views of this subject are doing immense damage to the cause of Christ in these last days. Some hold that some of the books of Scripture are not inspired at all and have no more authority or claim to our reverence than the writings of any ordinary man. Others who do not go as far as that and allow that all the books in the Bible are inspired maintain that inspiration was only partial and that there are portions in almost every book which are uninspired. Others hold that inspiration means nothing more than general superintendence and direction, and that while the Bible writers were miraculously preserved from making mistakes in great things and matters necessary to salvation, in things indifferent that they were left to their own unassisted faculties like any other writers. Some hold that all the ideas in the Bible were given by inspiration but not the words and language in which they are clothed. Though how to separate ideas from words is rather hard to understand. Some, finally, allow the thorough inspiration of all the Bible, and yet maintain that it was possible for the writers to make occasional mistakes in their statements, and that such mistakes do exist to this day. From all these views, I totally and entirely dissent. They all appear to me more or less defective, below the truth, dangerous in their tendency, and open to grave and insuperable objections. The view which I maintain is that every book and chapter and verse and syllable of the Bible was given by inspiration of God. I hold 
that not only the substance of the Bible, but its language, not only the idea of the Bible, but its words, not only certain parts of the Bible, but every chapter of the book, that all and each are of divine authority. I hold that the scripture not only contains the word of God, but is the word of God. I believe the narratives and statements of Genesis and the catalogs and chronicles were just as truly written by inspiration as the Acts of the Apostles. I believe Paul's message about the cloak and parchment was as much written under divine direction as the 20th century chapter 20th chapter of Exodus, the 17th of John, or the 8th of Romans. I do not say, be it remembered, that all these parts of the Bible are of equal importance to our souls. Nothing of the kind. But I do say they were all equally given by inspiration. In making this statement, I ask the reader not to misunderstand my meaning. I do not forget that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. The inspiration of every word for which I contend is the inspiration of every original Hebrew and Greek word as the Bible writers first wrote it down. I stand up for nothing more and nothing less than this. I do not say that those who wrote copies of the original Hebrew and Greek scriptures were incapable of making mistakes and never left out or added a word. I lay no claim to the inspiration of every word in the various versions and translations of God's word. So far as those translations and versions are faithfully and correctly done, so far they are practically of equal authority with the original Hebrew and Greek. We have reason to thank God that many of the translations are, in the main, faithful and accurate. At any rate, our own authorized version, if not perfect, is so far correct that in reading it, we have a right to believe that we are reading in our own tongue, not the word of man, but of God. Verbal inspiration, the only tenable view. Now for the view which I contend, that every word of the Bible is inspired, is not accepted by many, and is bitterly opposed in many quarters. I shall therefore mention a few reasons why it appears to me the only safe and tenable view which can be adopted, and the only one which is free from innumerable objections. If I err in maintaining it, I have the comfort, at any rate, of erring in good company. I only take up the same ground which all, almost all the fathers occupied, which Hooker and Owen took up long ago, and which Chalmers, Robert Haldane, Gawson, Bishop Wadsworth, and Bergen have ably defended more recently. I know, however, that men's minds are variously constituted. Arguments and reasons which appear weighty to some are of no weight with others. I shall content myself with setting down in order the reasons which satisfy me. 
A, for one thing, I cannot see how the Bible can be a perfect rule of faith and practice if it is not fully inspired, and if it contains any flaws and imperfections. If the Bible is anything at all, it is the statute book of God's kingdom, the code of laws and regulations by which the subjects of that kingdom are to live, the registered deed of the terms on which they shall have which they have peace now and shall have glory hereafter. Now, why are we to suppose that such a book will be loosely and imperfectly drawn up any more than legal deeds are drawn up on earth? Every lawyer can tell us that in legal deeds and statutes every word is of importance and that property, life, or death they often turn on a single word. Think of the confusion that would ensue if wills and conveyances and leases and agreements and acts of Parliament were not carefully drawn up and carefully interpreted, and every word allowed its due weight. Where would be the use of such documents if particular words went for nothing, and everyone had a right to add or take away or alter or deny the validity of words, or erase words at his own discretion. At this rate, we may as well, might as well lay aside our legal documents altogether. Surely, we have a right to expect that in the book, which contains our title deeds for eternity. Every word should be inspired, and nothing imperfect admitted. If God's statute book is not inspired, and every word is not of divine authority, God's subjects are left in a pitiable state. For another thing, if the Bible is not fully inspired and contains imperfections, I cannot understand the language which is frequently used about it in its own pages. Such expressions as the oracles of God, He saith, God saith, the Holy Ghost spake by Isaiah the prophet. The Holy Ghost saith, Today, if you will hear his voice, would appear to me inexplicable and extravagant if applied to a book containing occasional blemishes, defects, and mistakes. And there is a lot of references here. Acts 7.38, Romans 3.2, Hebrew 5.12, Peter 4.11, Hebrew 1.8, Acts 28, Hebrew 3.7, Romans 9.25. Once again, that every word of Scripture is inspired, and I see an admirable propriety in the language, I cannot understand the Holy Ghost making a mistake, or an oracle containing anything defective. If any man replies that the Holy Ghost did not always speak by Isaiah, I will ask him, who is to decide when he did and when he did not? For another thing, the theory that all the words of the Bible were not given by inspiration of God appears to me utterly at variance with several quotations from the Old Testament 
which I find in the new. I allude to those quotations in which the whole force of the passage turns on one single word, and once even on the use of singular instead of the plural number. Take, for instance, such quotations as, The Lord said unto my Lord, Matthew 22, verse 44. <clears throat> I said, Ye are gods, John 10:34. To Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In every one of these cases, the whole point of the quotation lies in a single word. But if this is so, it is hard to see on what principle we can deny the inspiration of all the words in the scripture. For another thing, if the words of scripture are not all inspired, the value of the Bible as a weapon in controversy is greatly damaged, if not entirely taken away. Who does not know that in arguing with Jews, Arians, or Socinians, the whole point of the text we quote against them often lies in a single word. What are we to reply if an adversary asserts that the special word of some text on which we ground an argument is a mistake of the writer and therefore of no authority? To my mind it appears that the objection would be fatal. For another thing, to give up verbal inspiration appears to me to destroy the usefulness of the Bible as an instrument for public preaching and instruction. Where is the use of choosing a text and making it the subject of a pulpit address if we do not believe that every word of the text is inspired? Once let our hearers get hold of the idea that the writers of the Bible could make mistakes in the particular words they used, and they will care little for any reproofs or exhortations or remarks which are based on words. How do you know, they might ask us, that this word about which you make such an ado yesterday was given by the Holy Ghost? How do you know that Paul or Peter or John did not make a mistake and use the wrong word? That they could make mistakes about words you yourself allow? I do not know what others may think. For myself, I could give no answer. Lastly, the denial of verbal inspiration appears to me to destroy a great part of the usefulness of the Bible as a source of comfort and instruction in private reading. Where is the truly Christian student of the Bible who does not know that words, particular words, afford a large portion of the benefit which he derives from his daily reading? How much the value of many a cherished text depends on some single phrase or the number of a substantive or the tense of a verb. Alas, there would be an end to all of this if we once conceived that each word is not inspired and that for anything we know, some much-loved favorite noun or verb or adjective 
was an apostle's mistake and the word of man not of God. What others might think I do not know. For myself I should be tempted to lay aside my Bible in despair and become of all men most miserable. Objections Answered Now I freely grant that many Christians think that the view I maintain is open to serious objections. That the Bible, generally speaking, is given by inspiration they firmly maintain, but they shrink from maintaining that inspiration extends to every word of the scripture. I am sorry to differ from these people, but I cannot see the weight and force of their objections. Fairly and honestly examined, they fail to carry conviction to my mind. Some object that there are occasional statements in the Bible which contradict the facts of history. Are these all verbally inspired? My answer that is that it is far more easy to assert this than to prove it. There is nothing of which we have so few trustworthy remains as very ancient history. And if ancient uninspired history and Bible history seem to disagree, it is generally safer and wiser to believe that Bible history is right and other history wrong. At any rate, it is a singular fact that all recent researches in Assyria, Babylon, Palestine, and Egypt show an extraordinary and increasing tendency to confirm the perfect accuracy of the word of God. There are buried evidences which God seems to keep in reserve for these last days. If Bible history and other histories cannot be made to agree at present, it is safest to wait. Some object that there are occasional statements in the Bible which contradict the facts of natural science. Are these all inspired? My answer is again that it is far more easy to assert this than to prove it. The Bible was not written to teach a system of geology or astronomy, and on matters touching these two sciences, it, is wise, it wisely uses popular language, such as common people can understand. No one thinks of saying the astronomer royal contradicts science because he speaks of the sun's rising and setting. If the Bible said anywhere that the earth was a flat surface, or that it was a fixed globe round which the sun revolved, or that it never existed in any state before Adam and Eve, there might be something in the objection, but it never does so. It speaks of scientific subjects as they appear, but it never flatly contradicts science. Some object that there are occasional statements in the Bible which are monstrous, absurd, and incredible. Are they really obliged to believe that Eve was tempted by the devil in the form of a serpent, that Noah was saved in an ark, that Balaam's ass spoke, and that Jonah actually went into the whale's belly? Are all these statements inspired? My answer is that Christ and his apostles spoke of these things as historical facts and were more likely to know the truth about them than we are. Will anyone dare to say that the eternal Son of God 
was ignorant and mistaken, or that he and his apostles spoke of things as real facts in order to please their hearers and readers, while they knew in their own hearts that they were only fables and not facts at all? I challenge an answer to that question. After all, do we believe in miracles or not? Do we believe that Christ himself rose from the dead? Let us stick to that one grand miracle first and disprove it if we can. If we do believe it, it is foolish to object to things because they are miraculous. Some object that there are grave discrepancies in some of the Bible histories, especially in the four Gospels, which cannot be made to harmonize and agree. Are the words, they ask, all inspired in these cases? Have the writers made no mistakes? I answer that the number of these discrepancies is grossly exaggerated, and that in many of the cases they are only apparent and disappear under the touch of common sense. Even in the hardest of them, we should remember in common fairness that there are very likely circumstances kept back from us which entirely reconcile everything if we only knew them. Very often in these days, when two honest men give a separate account of some long story, their accounts do not quite tally because one dwells on one part and the other on another. Some object that Job's friends in their long speeches said many weak and foolish things. Were all their words inspired? An objection like this arises from an illogical and confused idea of what inspiration means. The book of Job contains an historical account of a wonderful part of the old patriarch's, patriarch's history and a report both of his speeches and those of his friends. But we are nowhere told that either Job or Eliphaz and his companions spoke all that they spoke by the Holy Ghost. The writer of the book of Job was thoroughly inspired to record all they said, but whether they spoke rightly or wrongly is to be decided by the general teaching of Scripture. No one would say that Peter was inspired when he said, I know not the man in the high priest's palace. But the writer of the gospel was inspired when he wrote it down for our learning. In the Acts of the Apostles, the letter of Claudius Lysias was certainly not written by inspiration, and Gamaliel and the town clerk of Ephesus and Tertullus were not inspired when they made their speeches. But it is equally certain that Luke was inspired to write them down and record them in his book. Some object that Paul, in the seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians, when giving certain advice to the Corinthian church, says at one time, Not I, but the Lord. And, another, and at another, I, not the Lord. And they ask, Does this not show that in part of his advice he was not inspired? I answer, not at all. A careful study of the chapter will show 
that when the apostle says, not I, but the Lord, he lays down some principles on which the Lord had spoken already. And when he says, I, not the Lord, he gives advice on some point about which there had been no revelation hitherto. But there is not the slightest proof that he is not writing all the way through under direct inspiration of God. Some object that there are many varied readings of the words of Scripture and that we cannot, therefore, feel sure that we have the original inspired word of God. I answer that the various readings, when fairly examined, will prove to be absurdly exaggerated in number and importance. No doubt we may have lost a few of the original words. We have no right to expect infallibility in transcribers and copyists before the invention of printing. Considering how many hands the Bible passed through before printing was invented and who the transcribers were, it is marvelous that the various readings are so few. The fact that about the immense majority of all the words in the Old Hebrew and Greek scriptures there is no doubt at all is little short of a miracle and demands thanksgiving to God. One thing is very certain. There is no ancient book which has been handed down to us with so good a text and so few various readings as the Bible. I leave the objections to verbal inspiration at this point. It is vain to deny that the subject has its difficulties, which will probably never be completely solved. But I have no doubt that they can be explained, and perhaps will be someday. These things do not move me. I expect difficulties in such a deep and miraculous matter as inspiration, which I have not eyes to see through. I am content to wait. It was a wise saying of Faraday that there are many questions of science about which it is the highest philosophy to keep our minds in a state of judicious suspense. It should be a settled rule with us never to give up the great principle when we have got hold of it on account of difficulties. Time often makes things clear, which at first looks dark. The view of inspiration which presents the fewest difficulties is that in which all the words of Scripture, as well as the thoughts, are regarded as inspired. We may rest assured that the difficulties which beset any other theory of inspiration are tenfold greater than any which beset our own. The next article is The Doctrine of Scripture Today, Trends in Evangelical Thinking. Will Jones. The aim of this study is to sound an alarm in the light of current trends in evangelical thinking on the doctrine of Scripture. Because certain main points concerning what the Scriptures teach with regard to their own nature have been increasingly subjected to reinterpretation, the doctrine is being vitiated by its foes and even misrepresented by its friends. That within the contemporary evangelical world, there are friends is demanded by the very nature of the case, and one ventures to hope 
that they may be helped by a study such as this. That there are foes is often hotly denied and largely overlooked. This latter claim would no doubt be denied on the grounds that agreement as to the nature of Scripture will not necessarily result in a uniformity of interpretation of Scripture. Since there is a distinction between Scripture and the interpretation of Scripture, between what the Scriptures propose to teach and what expositors sometimes make them teach, the differences between contemporary evangelicals do not touch upon the nature of the Scripture, but how particular portions of it are to be interpreted. At first blush, this might seem to be cast iron logic, but on closer examination, this proves not to be the case. That there is such a difference, we would be the last to deny. But in a large number of cases, this is invoked as a cover for moving the issue in conflict from the realm of an overriding authority to the sphere of a freedom of interpretation. This, in effect, results in an unwarrantable accommodation of Scripture's teaching to non-biblical thought forms. We shall have occasion to note and comment on current issues and instances of this. All this is largely passed over and not noticed by many who espouse this doctrine faithfully. This is attributable to two factors. First, the vast majority of believing folks have never been able to unfold the characteristic elements of this doctrine because of the ignorance which resulted from the engulfing of theological colleges and pulpit ministries by liberalism at the turn of the century. To be able to recognize error, one must know the truth. Sadly, now that some attempt is being made to recover the ground which has been lost, what is coming into vogue is a diluted doctrine which is defective at decisive points. To discern half-truth demands a thorough grasp of the truth. What is the truth about the Holy Scriptures? The first section sets out to answer this question in principal form, and in connection with this, a bibliography is appended. The second reason why this matter is being bypassed is that the issues at stake are not being clearly presented. As we shall see, current writing in the United States and Holland manifests error in this field. But in Britain, error is lurking behind an orthodox vocabulary which serves as a smokescreen for the erosion of those fundamentals which it was intended to define and safeguard. In this country, attitudes and trends speak louder than words. These are scarce, though not entirely wanting and it is with trends that we shall concern ourselves, individuals and religious bodies being mentioned only in connection with evidence adduced. This study therefore divides itself naturally. In the first section, we shall submit a brief positive statement of the biblical doctrine of Scripture, and against this background, in the second section, we shall show some of the ways in which defection from this doctrine is manifesting itself today. Finally, by way of introductory comment, let no one think that we are engaging on a purely academic inquiry. Nothing could be more practical, because what we believe with regard to Scripture 
will soon affect our other beliefs and practices. 1. The Doctrine of Scripture We shall consider our distinctive emphasis of the doctrine under the following four categories and in connection with the Westminster Confession of Faith, Section 1. 1. The Origin and Purpose of Scripture 2. The Mediation of Scripture 3. The Characteristics of Scripture and 4. The Preservation of Scripture 1. The Origin and Purpose of the Scriptures The opening section of the Westminster Confession is explicit on this crucial issue. Its answer in principle is, It pleased the Lord to reveal himself. In our study of the scriptures, we must begin from a point outside them, but one which is unitedly and repeatedly attested by them, a point in eternity not in time, in heaven not on earth, in God and not man. This is revelation. No man can, by searching, find out God, whose thoughts and ways far exceed ours. There can be no fathoming of his understanding. When man was at his finest hour, he was but a finite creature and depended on God to disclose to him his person and will. Genesis 2 Eden was a universe in cameo, aflame with God's everlasting power and divinity. Romans 1.20 Man was God's image. Genesis 1.27 And yet God was under a necessity to reveal his will to him by words and commands. Creation and reason were not sufficient. The Lord God commanded as well as made. However, the Westminster Confession in this section posits the distinction with revelation which is to be found in the scriptures, e.g. Psalm 19, 1, 4, 7. This differentiation is normally termed general or natural as distinct from, but not unrelated to, special or supernatural revelations. We shall consider these and their interrelation and unique features, but as we do so, we must bear in mind, as this is germane to our study, that revelation is always a divine activity of self-unveiling and never a human achievement of discovering. That revelation is free, voluntary, gracious, purpose, sufficient, and plain is in the very warp and woof of the scriptures. The distinguishing features of these two types of revelation A. General or natural revelation each adjective points a particular significance and is therefore important. General refers to the fact that the content of this revelation is made known universally, and natural to the fact that it is made known in the works of creation and providence. The former refers to the diffusion of the revelation, the latter to the mean Jews. The content of this revelation is in principle the everlasting power and divinity of God, Romans 1.20. No man can invade, can evade being constantly confronted with God's existence, power, wisdom, goodness, justice in the created universe and in his own creaturely constitution. 
These realities are known by immediate intellectual and sense awareness. These externally given disclosures of the existence and certain attributes of God find a confirming testimony placed by God within the heart of every man. Coupled with this, in the heart of every man is an attestation of God's justice and judgment on sin and sinners, and that man is under law to God. However, this revelation, which is universally given, is universally misinterpreted and suppressed, and that deliberately every man, in accord with his fallen nature inherited from Adam, holds down the truth, professes to be wise, and worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. Still God continues to restrain iniquity in his common grace, to remonstrate in his long suffering, though judicially giving up men and women in his wrath to the power of their own evil desires. Every man on the grounds of sin within at least the terms of general revelation is without excuse, and everyone's mouth will be stopped at the last day. Romans Special or supernatural revelations. Here again, these adjectives have their particular force. This revelation is directed to the people of God as opposed to all mankind, and is accomplished not through natural processes, but by a divine direct incursion into the natural order in a supernatural way. The former adjective refers to the exclusiveness of the revelation the latter to the means used. The content of this revelation in principle is the righteousness of God. No revelation of the saving grace of God was possible within the terms of general revelation. For this it was not sufficient. Whereas the sole and all-inclusive theme of special revelation is, I will be your God and you shall be my people. However, the manifold and extensive contents of this embryo theme are not set out in the two testaments by way of a fully blown system which is repeatedly enunciated, but is expressed at sundry times and in diverse manners. This means that God revealed himself and his will within the confines and courses of a historical process, and yet his overruling sovereignty did not make history unrealistic. The unfolding of this saving purpose is described in the scriptures, and it is most suitably considered in terms of the homogeneous development of seed to shoot to stalk to bud to flower. The seed is Genesis 3.15, which contains in embryo all that is described in the culmination of this revelatory process around the appearance person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in its application until the consummation. The principle has far-reaching repercussions with regard to the relationship between the two testaments. This single theme described above is precisely what unites the testaments and what separates them. The seed contains the flower in principle, as by nature and promise but the bloom can never be forced back into the form of the seed. To treat the Old Testament as if it were essentially the new in a shadowy, typical form is to ignore the fact that the fulfillment is in the new. To treat the new as if it were novel and unheralded is to leave it without the foundation 
an adum, uh, adumbration of the old. Special revelation is thus characterized by expansions of its contents and variations in its modes of disclosure, while it deals with its single theme and stems from its single source, Hebrew 1, 1 and 2. This raises two large themes which cannot be dealt with in full here, namely the modes of revelation in the scriptures and the description of the expanding contents of this covenantal promise as they are unfolded by God through his appointed means. We shall try to sketch in a few bold lines on the former topic, only because it lies a little nearer the heart of our subject. In the scriptures, certain stages of revelation may be noted, but the lines are not to be drawn too heavily between them. Subsequent to the fall, we first see that in the patriarchal age, God addressed men through their physical senses by means of symbols, dreams, manifestations, and theophanies. Then after Sinai, the characteristic of prophetic inspiration began to appear, again with varied phenomena, in connection with which God worked internally in his chosen instruments and revealed his secrets there. This paves the way for the New Testament, with its emphasis on the inwardness of true religion. However, on interpreting any portion of scriptural revelation, one must have regard to its place within the process of God's self-disclosing, the person to whom the disclosure was made, and to the fact that revelation is is historically conditioned, and thus is adapted to historical circumstances, personal characteristics, and cultural levels. There is no veiled confession that the biblical revelation partakes of the errors of the various times in which it was given, but is only an affirmation that it confines itself to the limitations of innate modes of communication. In this connection, one matter must be stressed. This divine self-disclosure is not to be reduced to the guiding of the historical process to a redemptive goal, nor to a divine human encounter in which man is made aware of God's glory and claims. This is a debased, the widely held concept of revelation. It results in a wedge, philosophical, not biblical, being driven between the written scripture and the word of God, the former being a fallible human record to the latter, which is a revelatory word. As a result, Scripture becomes a nose of wax in the hands of those who claim to be believers in and servants of the Word of God, and conceals the Word of God rather than revealing it. Revelation is God speaking, God interpreting his own work. It is propositional, communicated in the form of truth expressed in words, and is aimed at leading the elect to a knowledge of its author and giver the relation between these two types of revelation. One cannot do better than to quote Professor B. B. Warfield's definitive statement here. The one is adapted to man as man, the other to man as sinner. And since man, on becoming sinner, has not ceased to be man, but has only acquired new needs requiring additional provisions to bring him to the end of his existence, 
So the revelation directed to man as sinner does not supersede that given to man as man, but supplements it with these new provisions for his attainment in his new condition of blindness, helplessness, and guilt induced by sin of the end of his being. Two, the mediation of the scriptures. With equal emphasis to that which has already been used respecting the divine origin of the scriptures, we now state that the Bible has come to us through the instrumentality of men and not directly from heaven. The only perfect man, Jesus Christ, never wrote a book, whereas each of the books of the Bible has a human author, whether known by name or not. On this ground, many have unjustifiably drawn the conclusion that human authorship must mean that the records are fallible and erroneous in some respect. However, the biblical doctrine of inspiration does perfect justice to the human agency and the divine authorship of the Holy Scriptures without distorting either. It should be emphasized that the divinity of Scripture is not to be maintained by depreciating human agency. To underscore the fact of divine authorship does not necessitate that we overlook the fact of human instrumentality. To maintain such is to manifest a grossly its efficient understanding of the nature of divine providence and its relation to free agency. Inspiration treats men as men and not as typewriters or automata, heightening rather than destroying their personal characteristics and abilities and yet secures the amazing fact that what was written by men was first of all breathed out by God. 2 Timothy 3.16 Therefore, within the terms of our statement, we must stress that the scriptures were written by human beings for other human beings. This means that there are certain superficial similarities, as well as the differences which we tenaciously maintain, between the Bible and other literature. The Bible is the result of the thinking and speaking of diverse men and women who thought and spoke in particular ways. Idioms, languages, Hebrew, Greek, Aramic, and from within varying historical conditions. They wrote in poetry, Isaiah 40, or prose, 1 Samuel. Historically, Chronicles 1 and 2, and devotionally, Psalms. They wrote directly or from specified sources, Joshua 10, 13, 2, Samuel 1, 18, numeral 21, 14, and sometimes did not even write themselves, but used amanuenses, Romans 16, 22. To ignore these features and far more besides is to distort, not elevate, scripture. Two basic questions arise in this connection, namely, how it could ever be that what men wrote God has said, and that inspiration which alone explains this phenomenon is restricted to the 66 books alone. The Inspiration of Scripture In commenting on 1 Corinthians 2, 7, 13, Charles Hodge writes, there is neither in the Bible nor in the writings of men a simpler or clearer statement of the doctrines of revelation and inspiration. 
revelation is the act of communicating divine knowledge by the spirit to the mind. Inspiration is the act of the same spirit controlling those who make the truth known to others. The thoughts, the truth made known, and the words in which they are recorded are declared to be equally from the spirit. This, from first to last, has been the doctrine of the church. Dr. K. Runia in Carl Barth's Doctrine of the Holy Scriptures gently criticizes this statement because Hodge concentrates inspiration one-sidedly upon the aspect of infallibility. Whilst agreeing with Hodge's contention, Dr. Runia states that the main aspect is a material one, namely that in inspiration the Holy Spirit operates in, with, and through persons selected by himself in such a way that what they say or write is indeed the revelation of God. What these men produce is not a collection of human ideas, however sublime, nor is it a human infallible witness to revelation, but it is really what it claims to be, God's own and therefore infallible revelation. In this connection, the apostolic teaching of 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21 is definitive. Paul states that all scripture is not breathed into by God when it has been written, but that what is written was breathed out by God. Peter states positively that the chosen instruments were raised up and borne along by the Spirit's initiative and control, and this divine act resulted in the writing of scripture. He explicitly excludes any suggestion that the origin of scripture is to be found in human initiative or reflection of any kind, and yet as explicitly asserts human instrumentality. While in context these claims refer strictly to the Old Testament, there are all factors which demand that they, predict, they, that they be predicted of the New Testament as well. The constant retrospective references of the Lord, the Apostles, and the other authors of New Testament books to the Old Testament in terms of prediction and fulfillment argue strongly in favor of the two Testaments being regarded as interrelated on the same plane of inspiration and authority. In addition, the act of conscious submission of the characters in the New Testament period to the Old Testament points in the same direction. The Lord himself authorized his apostles to become infallible teachers of the truth, and for this promised them the Spirit. John 14, 26, 16, 13, 14. Of this they were conscious, and spoke and wrote as such. The inspiration of the scriptures is therefore not mechanical, in which man is depersonalized, but organic, as the divine revelation is closed, by a divinely formed and furnished, albeit human, mind and personality into a divine human revelation. Such inspiration cannot but be verbal, which means that given intelligible words in their accumulated significance reveal and do not conceal or distort the living word of God. Also, this inspiration is plenary. There is no part of the scripture which is less inspired than any other, though not every part is charged with the same revelatory significance, e.g. the speech of Eliphaz and John 17. 
history, genealogy, cosmology, as well as salvation, are the word of God, and no wedge of selectivity or preference can be driven between what God has in scriptures bound together inseparably. This, of course, only refers in a strict sense to the original manuscripts as they were first written in Hebrew and Greek. This will be developed later. However, the divine originals are to be regarded as having come from heaven, as directly if God had been heard giving utterance to them. Calvin Institute, 1-8-I. The Canons of the Testament. The inspiration of the books which appear in the Bible made them authoritative, canonical in themselves and their inclusion in an official collection by Jews and Christians respectively was by virtue of their intrinsic authority being recognized. The canon of Old Testament books was already formulated by our Lord's day and to the threefold division of that collection. He referred approvingly in Luke 24. How was the extent of this collection determined? There are certain indications of the process in the Old Testament itself. In this, the figure and ministry of Moses was crucial. The testimony of the prophets possessed the same character, and the historical books, Joshua, two kings, were prophetic in that they were an interpretive history of the period following Sinai, written on the basis of the covenantal or prophetic principle. The remainder were recognized as inspired, and later queries regarding the inspiration of Ecclesiastes and Esther were only raised in academic circles. The Apocrypha was decisively rejected because it did not display the same characteristics as these other books. With regard to the New Testament, the figures of the Lord and his apostles replaced Moses and the prophets. Here is a closed collection alongside that of the Old Testament, each book of which is imbued with divine authority. These books and letters were circulated among various churches singly or in collections, and gradually these and no others came to be recognized as having stemmed from God because of their internal authority and characteristics. See the characteristics of the scriptures. To grant that what was written by way of Holy Scripture was God-breathed is to commit oneself in advance to maintain a position that was written in his indefectible authority. God does not deceive or err, and it is impossible that Scripture should not partake of the character of its author. As Warfield wrote, Revelation is but half-revelation unless it be infallibly communicated. It is but half-communicated unless it be infallibly recorded. This is iron logic, and if this were not true of the scripture, what kind of God emerges? The Holy Scriptures are wholly true, supremely authoritative, and sufficiently clear to communicate the saving knowledge of God's person and will, which cannot be gained from any other source. We shall now examine the three parts of this assertion. 1. The scriptures are true. They are infallible and inerrant. These two adjectives are often used interchangeably in current discussion, but strictly speaking they refer to distinct though related aspects of the nature of the veracity of scripture. 
If a record is infallible, then it cannot deceive the reader by anything it says. And if it is inerrant, then it cannot be mistaken on any detail which it mentions. This is what is to be maintained with regard to this matter. Clearly, the former epithet demands the latter, and both together refer to all that is found in Holy Writ. Two, the scriptures are authoritative. They will not pass away, and they cannot be broken. In Matthew 5.17, the Lord refers to the minutest data of Scripture as possessing this characteristic of abiding validity and authority. The jot is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and the tittle is a minute projection which distinguishes consonants of similar form from another, from one another. The law is meticulously accurate and is in, indissoluble in its authority. These jots and fiddles are important for the meaning they preserve and convey. It is, however, wrong to think abstractly of words and letters as being inspired, but of these as set in clauses, sentences, books, and indeed the whole of Scripture. John 10:34 and 35 are also to be noted because there are two phrases here which relate to the authority of Scripture and impute the very authority of God himself to it. In verse 34, there is an appeal to written prepositions which partake of the character of law and not to oral traditions or religious concepts. Your law stands for the whole of the Old Testament, as in John 12:34, and not merely Psalm 82, from which the quotation is actually taken. In this quotation, one word, God, supports the whole argument of the Lord, which, as it happens in the context, is a claim on his part to be the Son of God. If one word cannot be annulled, then what of the whole? Verse 35 supplies the reason why, in the Lord's estimation, the appeal to Scripture was so conclusive. It cannot be broken. Its authority is indefectible. Its inerrancy irrefragable. Three, the scriptures are plain. They are sufficient and perspicuous. This completeness means that all that is needed to disclose the will of God lies within their pages, and therefore no addition from man's reason or other sources is permissible, let alone necessary. Their clarity means that the humblest person taught by the Spirit may read and understand, and therefore no priestly caste is needed. The Bible is an open public book and is not to be restricted to a special class with circulation. The Preservation of the Scriptures We are not shaken by the taunts that this Bible, for which we have been claiming so much, is in point of fact non-existent because the original records even if they were breathed out by God, are no longer extant. On the contrary, just as revelation without inspiration is only half revelation, so we are persuaded that the inspiration, which must and did result in infallible recording, is no inspiration unless what was so recorded is also preserved. This preservation is the result of the singular care and providence of God, 
which kept pure in all ages what was originally given. The Old Testament in Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek are authentic. However, having said this, it must be freely confessed that within this one statement there is a deep cleavage of outlook among equally thoroughgoing evangelicals of the present day, <coughs> as there has been over the last 80 years. The issue is how, by using many manuscripts we have of the original autograph, we may recover the best text, namely the reading in each case which is most faithful to the original autograph. The division of opinion relates mainly to the New Testament. On the one hand, Dean J. W. Bergen, 1813 to 1888, and Dr. E. F. Hills, in our own day, oppose the textual methods of Bishop Westcott and Hort, to whose influence B. B. Warfold is claimed to have succumbed, and they maintain that there is but one providentially preserved text, the Byzantine, which was the Reformation text, and the one behind the authorized version translation. On the other hand, there is the view to which expression is given in the infallible word. This is too large and technical a matter to be investigated in brief, and readers are referred to the relevant literature in the bibliography where both views are fully presented. The Bible is a book which, though it is written by men for men, is yet written by God for his own glory. Its subject matter is God, and how he becomes our God through Jesus Christ. To this, both Testaments bear witness. It is therefore a book which must be studied in its own light, and that is the light shed on the words by its author. God, the Holy Spirit. Roman numeral two deviations from the doctrine. We wish to assert unequivocally that the position as outlined is to be regarded as standard, and any deviations from it or reservations in connection with any of its features partake of the character of heresy. These claims in statement form are not open to such expansion as results in an adaptation of or departure from the principles which they enshrine. It is to the existence of such trends among contemporary evangelical scholars that we now draw attention. As we do so, we wish to remind ourselves that a trend is something very different from an odd letter written to a religious paper. It is a manifest, persistent inclination toward a set, definable course. We also wish to make it plain that we take no perverted delight in being able to reduce the following evidence, and would prefer that there were no instances to submit of such an adaptation and departure as we have mentioned. However, there is too much at stake to justify a charitable silence, and we claim that the responsibility for what we shall present is to be laid at the door of evangelical scholars. No one enjoys being derided. Scorn strikes at one's personal feelings and at one's desire to be accepted and esteemed by one's contemporaries. No more frequent charge has been leveled against evangelicals than that, in an age when the restricting confines of human knowledge and experience are being pushed back and the traditional gets placed to the modern, 
Their minds are closed and they live in the intellectual and emotional backwoods. This barbed comment, when it is voiced nowadays, is soured even more by the allegation that evangelicals are afraid to face the insights and expansions of the new age, knowing full well that, were they to do so, the inadequacy and untenability of their beliefs in God, the origin of the world, and the Bible would become plain not only to others, but more especially to themselves. So it is claimed that we prefer blissful delusion rather than to learn through first being undeceived. However, our forebears were not prepared to let the written word of God be exposed to such ridicule. They were able to meet the higher critics on their own ground and to expose the hollowness of their claim, to have an open mind by uncovering their philosophical presuppositions, and to refute their assured conclusions by the sheer weight of their learning. Much that was written to uphold the veracity of the scriptures in the United States from Old Princeton and New Westminster was abundantly vindicated and is still more precious than gold. In this literature, a determined assault was launched on the already tottering fortifications of classical higher criticism of the Wellhausen variety. And on the other hand, a plain demonstration was given of how all the new facts relating to the Bible were perfectly in keeping with the dogmatic position scripture claims for itself. This vigorous apologetic was and still is of real service in the cause of truth. An incipient departure from the orthodox position on scripture can now be discerned in the work of a succeeding generation of evangelical scholars. It appeared as a shift of stance. It was soon to harden into a position. This was that the unequivocal self-witness of scripture to its inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority came to be minimized, and the case for these claims came to be formulated in terms of the inner values of the scriptures, the witness of archaeology and tradition, and the processes and conclusions of a dedicated scholarship. This was deemed necessary in order that their arguments should carry some weight with their opponents. Admittedly, this is a slight shift, but it is the thin edge of a very significant wedge. And increasingly nowadays, scholarly study lies between us and an appeal to scripture's self-witness. There is a growing body of opinion, particularly among younger evangelical scholars, which demands that we must now dispense with, not minimize as formally, a deductive approach to, script to scripture and employ an inductive one exclusively. The stance has become a position. This claim means that the orthodox position regarding scripture can no longer be established by an appeal to scripture's witness to itself and to a study of the scriptures in the light of this statement, deductive. We must rather begin at the other end with a painstaking study of all the textual variants and difficulties, exegetical problems, contradictions, so-called, and our conclusions from the above must be allowed to determine whether we can assent to the age-old doctrine, or whether it needs an academic facelift. This is indeed a dangerous course to adopt because the kind of methodology we employ 
determines the conclusions we can make. It is impossible to try and salvage biblical evangelical conclusions from anti-biblical presuppositions. We have thus lost important ground by failing to maintain it unashamedly and persistently. To consign a truth to silence, however temporary, is to run the risk of consigning it to oblivion, not only beyond one's own reach, but beyond the reach of succeeding generations, too. Dr. Rooney had commented decisively and with relevance on this matter in the book, to which reference had already been made. He points out that the inductive group, if followed, has two devastating side effects. First, were it to be strictly observed, it would never permit its followers to come to a real theological doctrine of the scripture. He says the examination of the structure of the Bible is a purely historical affair, and as such it never leads to a theological doctrine. Secondly, such a procedure involves the adopting of the starting point of unbelief. Here Rooney quotes Bavinick, who wrote, Everyone who makes his doctrine of scripture dependent upon historical examination of its formation and structure begins already with rejecting its testimony, and therefore does not stand any more in the attitude of faith to scripture. 1. Concessions to Non-Evangelical Scholarship However, scholarship becomes all-important, if not indispensable, for the maintenance of the position that the scripture ought to occupy, and the wider field of scholarly thought is a place where treasures may be found. For example, in a review of the New Bible Dictionary, which appeared in the Bulletin for Theological Students, published by the IDF, is the following. The New Bible Dictionary displays a new feeling among conservative scholars in the relationship to others working in the same field. Absent are the prejudices and attitudes of a bygone era that felt constrained to dismiss everything critical. This is the first trend which appears in contemporary evangelical thought and writing. There is a new openness abroad. Positions which were formerly polarized are now being interrelated. Evangelical scholars let it be known and show that they feel able to consider the views and entertain the conclusions of non-evangelical scholars favorably, though these are precluded by the scriptures which they claim to uphold. Nowhere does this appear as clearly as in reviews of non-evangelical books and commentaries by evangelical reviewers. Adjective views are valuable, profitable, stimulating, worthy of consideration, whereas there is a painful lack of criticism. For example, in The Life of Faith, November 2, 1967, Professor F.F. F. Bruce reviewed a commentary on the book of Exodus by Principal Hinton Davies of Regent's Park, Oxford. In passing, the reviewer mentions that the author believes that Exodus manifests expansions by a later age of the bare facts of the Exodus motive. No stricture is passed on this, and so a crypto-evolutionary view of the development of Israel's religion out of the literature of the Old Testament is apparently sanctioned by an evangelical scholar in an evangelical newspaper. 
Before we note further evidences of such unwarrantable concessions to what amount in reality to groundless hypotheses, we shall look at typical representation of what is meant by this open-mind approach, which evangelicals call on their fellows to display. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.